Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Cynthia Loren here. Today, I'm pleased to share a conversation I recently had with Alex Guajardo, Global Director of Commercial Strategy at Brian Cave Leighton Paisner, also known as BCLP, and former Head of Legal Pricing and Analytics at Shell. Alex is a prominent figure in the legal ops community, advocating for transparency and communication as a catalyst for positive change. Prepare to be inspired in this interview as Alex shares her story and highlights some of her remarkable career achievements. In the discussion, we delve into the power of data in arming legal ops professionals and lawyers for challenging conversations, the importance of empowering lawyers with the right data-driven tools, and also how legal teams can best adapt to industry changes. Alex is a joy to talk to and truly a gem in the legal ops world. So I'm thrilled to have had her as this week's podcast guest. So in usual fashion, sit back, relax and enjoy the conversation. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about the new exciting role that you've recently taken on. Hi, Cynthia. So I'm Alex Guajardo. I actually just transitioned from Shell over to BCLP. It's Actually, a really cool position. So I'm the Global Director of Commercial Strategy, a newly formed role. They're focusing on, you know, how do we provide more client value and what does that mean for the firm? So I have a few teams under me and really great talent within the firm already. So I'm excited to be here and just to bring over all the learnings I've captured throughout all these years. Amazing. Well, first of all, congratulations. Tell us about how you initially got involved with law firms? Because I know you've kind of done law firms then transitioned over into a legal ops role and then to law firm. So let's maybe start at the beginning. Initially, one of our very first roles at a law firm was conflicts analyst. I actually started in a conflicts check is something you do in order to make sure you don't have the same firm representing and suing, you know, the clients on both sides of the table. And that role, I really Um, got to see a lot of how the firms were functioning in the background. And as I was going through all my educational studies, really got to dabble into, you know, the billing world and their new business intake and all of these processes that are so integral to a law firm in order to do business. I actually worked really closely with some great people that were looking at the legal industry in a more business oriented way. And as I went through my studies and decided between going to law school or graduate school, um, and I ultimately chose graduate school and got my MBA, I got to work on client profitability and partner profitability and all of those fun things, you know, move more into the finance world of the legal ops side. And that really opened up a lot of different doors. And I think for me, one of the things is that I've always been very open as to doing new things within my role. So I've always been a hybrid of my roles. I have never been, you know, one and done. I'm more of a, you know, if there's a new project, I want, I'm excited to try it. If there's a new uh, technology, I want to give it a shot. And that has allowed me to learn from not only great people, but, you know, Uh, processes and things that are working within the firm and also being a little bit critical as to what's not working and what we can do better. It's fantastic just the 
I think just the evolution of what you've been able to achieve. I mean, you're well known in the legal ops field. I know you do lots with um, LVN and other organizations. So maybe talk to us a little bit about that transition, because you basically went from conflict checking in a law firm and then ended up at you know, in a very significant legal sourcing role at Shell, one of the largest oil and gas companies in the world. How, how did you make that happen? How did you make that leap? What were the steps? What was involved? After getting my graduate degree and working in the legal law space, I actually went to a couple of other firms. And my last firm I was at was Baker Botts. And in the role that I had there was also a newly created role. Looking back, a lot of my roles were newly created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of me on my few firms, which look, that is in itself, like, it's a great place to be that there's these roles that come up. And, you know, one of the things I've learned from a great mentor was, you know, what are you doing to prepare today when the next opportunity knocks on the door? You can't tell people, hold on, I'm not ready. There's a skill set I need. Mm-hmm. As I was working on, you know, expanding my skill set and my knowledge, when these opportunities came to be, it really, I was able to step into them. And my last role in a law firm, I was a practice manager. And that role, I was able to work with the pricing team and the strategic plan of the firm and profitability. And that role really showed me the inner workings at the management level of a firm. You know, how do we get to profit margin? Like what what makes them do the things they do and how they do it? When Shell came knocking on the door and said, we have this opportunity for you. Are you interested? I was at first I was hesitant, but always open because you should consider your options. And I did listen to what they had to offer. And the role at Shell sounded really cool. They did not have a legal operations function, not a formal one. Um, They were going to build out the team. It was going to be a global team. Um, Initially, it would be small, but the role, you know, would allow me to work, you know, with the team across the globe and to establish things that were not there. So I started on a Monday and Friday, we had a huge hurricane in Houston and the city shut down for two weeks. And everyone went to work from home. And when you go work from home, when you've only been four days on the job, you know no one. You're not on video calls because we didn't do video back then because the the system wasn't set up for video. We were doing uh, audio calls. I did not know who was talking. And this is pre-pandemic, right? So this is 2017. And so you think about it, and it doesn't seem like a big deal. It was a huge deal that for those two weeks, I was like, oh my God, what did I get into? Why did I do this? Like, I should have stayed on the first side. I have no idea how this is happening. And I was so overwhelmed by the not knowing. I felt as all the technical and process and strategic planning and the pricing, all of my knowledge, I was starting over, right? People didn't know who I was. People did not know what I did. Um, and that was not only terrifying, it was it was hard. And and I'm very vocal about that because those two weeks really had me st- take a step back and say, am I doing the right thing? Am I at the right place? Fortunately for me, I'm not a quitter. <laughs> and uh, we went back to the office after those two weeks. And as I started to meet people, it's a lot of learning and a lot of doing and establishing things that were not there. And so there's a lot of challenges that come with that. Um, those challenges can be overcome. I mean, obviously I did, thankfully. And then, but the last three years, what we built in working with the team there, working under great leadership, because that makes a huge difference, right? Um, I worked for Eric Press, the Central Legal Operations Officer, and he pretty much said, this is your team. What do you want to do? And I said, these are the ideas. This is what I want. And so pushing those things forward really made a difference. And 
it became a really great opportunity for me to not only push myself out of my comfort zone, but also reestablish myself. So I always would joke around that I was the, the woman with the neon sign. Remember Legal Ops, we're over here. Hello, we can help you. Remember Legal Ops. The lawyers are there and they're trying to do 20 things on the same time. They're managing many matters with lots of firms. They have difficult jobs. And our job in legal operations is to make their lives easier, not to slow them down or you know, inhibit anything they're doing, but really to, to show them you know, our, what our value is by facilitating things for them. That's, that's what legal operations is. You know, we set things up so that the lawyers can focus on the lawyering and that's, that's what they're there to do. There's a, a couple of things that you've mentioned that I wanna delve into, but before we do, I wanna ask, just give us a sense of scale. So when you joined Shell, you were saying there was hardly any team. How many people were in the team when you started and when you recently, you know, you've obviously just moved on. How large is the is the legal ops function now? So when I joined um, Shell, there were no, there was no one in the legal operations team because they didn't get created until I joined in August. It didn't get created till January. Um, and then when the team started, it was small. I want to say less than less than fifteen, maybe. And then by the time I left, there were over 100, I believe. There was 100 team people in the, in the legal operations team. Now, that's still pretty small considering the size of Shell. Um, but, and, you know, even the sourcing team was small. But in reality, leveraging skill set, process, and technology allowed us to, to really support across the globe, right? And that's, that's something you have to do. Some, you can't just bring in, people don't have unlimited budgets. It's not a reality. So you have to leverage the other things, right? The process, the the technology you can use and, and making sure that the people have the right uh, levels of development and training so that they can, they can uh, work to their optimal potential. So one of the things that you just touched on um, earlier was about, you know, the, the legal ops uh, responsibility almost is to enable the lawyers to focus on lawyering. And I know, a lot of what you were, the role that you were doing, certainly towards the end, was about helping to manage um, the outside outside counsel uh, program and the preferred panel firms. Talk us through what your main responsibilities were and how that was distinct from what the lawyers were doing. So what were you doing as opposed to what your in-house counsel were doing? All of these companies, I mean, Shell included, have a lot of legal needs. And one of the things that I was most focused on was building the relationship with the law firms. Uh, when I arrived, a lot of the firms believed that Shell just wanted the cheapest, you know, cost and just get the job done. And we really didn't, you know, there was no thought to how a firm was selected, which could not be the furthest thing from the truth. It's important to align on expectations and to have these discussions with the firms so that they really begin to trust the fact that our lawyers are really looking for the best representation. It's they're the ones that manage to it. They're the ones that have to answer to leadership, right? And my job was to not only make recommendations to them based on what was in front of me, but also to make sure that I was getting the right levels of information. The lawyers do not have time to go over 100-page proposals, especially when we're doing a competitive bidding process. They also don't always have time to provide feedback to the firms, and the firms need feedback in order to you know, better customize or modify their proposals the next time. And if they're not getting that feedback, it's hard for the firms to know what they're doing wrong or what they're even doing right. 
So mm -hmm. in my role, I was able to have those conversations and have difficult conversations. There was a firm that I had to go back to and say, look, you guys have a great relationship partner, but he outshines everyone. And it's not even outshine. Outshine would be a good thing. He is overshadowing everyone in every proposal because he's talking so loudly and demanding so much time mm -hmm. and attention that the other talent you have on these on these teams doesn't come forward. It doesn't come. It's not obvious from these conversations with our lawyers. I had to say that. And guess what? The firm very, you know, willingly took that criticism. And what they did is made sure that on the other pitches, their other attorneys were more vocal and the other one was a little less vocal, right? We also had um, other conversations when, you know, our firms would go and bust a budget. And I had to go have mm -hmm. a conversation about that and say, look, my lawyer loves what you guys are doing, but you guys keep busting through the budget. This is not okay. It's not acceptable. And if it's going to hurt uh, us, it's going to hurt you. We're going to share in the pain because at the end of the day, someone needs to be proactive in letting our attorneys know what what's not going as planned. If you are not proactive in that, then something's missing. And that really helped because once the firm gets that one time, they're really good about trying to come back and say, look, you, we don't want this to be what you're with the lawyers here all the time. I also talked to our firms about realistic proposals. When proposals were coming in too unrealistic because the firms wanted to get um, the work, I would rather the firm be transparent and say, look, we're this we're looking at this as at this one as an investment into the, the relationship and we're taking a risk. But we know that once you see the work we're going to put in front of you, you know, you'll you'll consider us for additional work later. That to me is more beneficial than a firm coming in underbidding just to get the work and then not being able to adhere to that budget or to that AFA and expecting a different result, right? Because then now that relationship is a slightly tainted to the point where the lawyer doesn't trust the firm anymore. And that, tr well, you know, that trust is imperative as we're working through these difficult cases. So the difficulty in having the conversations, would, would you say that was the most um, challenging part of doing that role? Because it's, I mean, a lot of what you've described is having some pretty difficult conversations on behalf of corporate counsel with your outside counsel firms. Um, would you say that's the hardest part of, of, of that particular role? And also, I guess, join to that, what was, um, what's the in-house lawyer's view on you being the person having that discussion? Every lawyer works slightly differently. And when I was working with the team at Shell, it is our job to be the flexible ones, right? So in legal operations, we're the ones with the flexibility. Um, my job was to arm our lawyers with the information they needed in order to have those discussions. And sometimes it's data, right? I would put data in front of them so that they could have these discussions with their firms. Some lawyers are, they want to do the negotiating. They want to have these difficult conversations. They want to deal with it themselves yeah. because they're more hands-on. Others, you know, are so focused on their cases that are going on and their, their matters or their, you know, their deals that, they just don't either don't have the time or don't have the ability to slow down and do that. My role was really to adapt to that, you know, and that's my team's job. And, and even on the on the firm side, that is our job, right, is to, to provide them with the right level of information so that these discussions can be happening so that there's a successful outcome on either side. And success is not always clear. Uh, and when success isn't clear, then how do you deliver to that? So it, it was a difficult part of my job, 
but it wasn't a, it wasn't impossible. And the, the best way to get past the difficult is to be armed with the right level of information. I had firms that would say, we never get invited to proposals for, you know, why should we be on your panel? We don't get invited to, to bid for work. And the only way to change that narrative is to show them the data and say, well, look, in the last, you know, this many months, you've been invited. And let me just, you know, let's say 10 times. Um, out of 10, you were conflicted out four times. The other three, you said no. And the time, the three times that you actually bid on something, you got two. So you really got two out of three because the others, you know, you weren't. So when you do it that way, the, the conversation becomes more fruitful than just, yeah, you know, we're, yeah, making, then yeah. we're making assumptions. And just as much as I negotiated with the firms, I also negotiated in-house because um, sometimes our lawyers within in-house have had some expectation of a firm to do a certain thing. And then here I have the firms and I had multiple firms saying, we can't do that. You know, we can't get there at what you're asking us to do. So I was pretty much that, you know, in the middle. And look, I tell my lawyers all the time, you need someone to have that. I am not afraid of being told no. So um, throw me in there. We'll have a conversation. It's not always a yes. But um, one of the things that I do believe in is that if either side feels that they're losing, it doesn't work long term. The firm isn't going to be happy representing us. The client is not going to be happy with the firm's level of support or what they're or what they're doing for them. And it has to feel like a win win on both sides. When one side feels like the other one's taking advantage it, or not, you know, if it, it, it's a relationship, right? And it, if it doesn't work in both directions, it doesn't go well long term. And none of these firms, not one, is being used one time by any client and then they're done. It's not, uh, legal services are complex. There's no way. Yeah. Any corporate client is using a firm for one one deal and saying, we're never going to use you again, unless something went terribly wrong. I always look at the legal ops role as being very much, you are an information conduit. So, mm -hmm. you know, in, ensuring that information is flowing both ways, but also you are building bridges, you know, because you're, you're kind of holding the two elements together. That said, I know that legal operations is vast. People come at it from very different perspectives. Um, it's it's an evolving field, you know, even with the, you know, the changes in AI. I know there's lots of discussion about what's legal ops going to look like in the future. So for you right now, as we are um, in May 2023, mm -hmm. what would you say is the most rewarding thing about being in the legal ops space? Um, the most rewarding thing is that it's always evolving, right? There's always evolution. There's always ways to do things better. Um, I learned very early on in my career not to be, you know, not to feel criticized or bothered when there was a better way, because there's always a better way, right? And I, I may have a great idea, but tomorrow there may be a better way to to expand on that idea and to to actually execute on it. Um, that to me has been has been by far the most exciting part of legal operations is that it's it's constantly evolving. It's not what it started out to be. It's, and it, I don't believe that it, ever, it, it will, it will be right. It will always continue to change. And the people that are involved in it, the people like, like all of us that are in the legal ecosystem in a different way, right? The corporate side, the law firm side, and, and the, you know, our business partners, you know, our technology side, if we are open and we're willing to look outside the box and try new things and look at enhancing things and, how do we do things in a better way? We're going to continue to be part of this, 
this. But I think when you start to say my way is the only way or I know all the answers and I don't need any support and I, you don't look around, you're missing out on what legal ops really and truly is and what it is going to continue to be. Like, I mean, the, I think for a long time, the word innovation was just getting thrown out there and so much, right? Like innovation, innovation, innovation. But when you think about what innovation is or what it's supposed to be, it's legal operations is supposed to be about never ending change. I connect with people at Thomson and Reuters. I connect with people at, you know, different on different podcasts. It is important that I, you know, stay in the know of things. So I do a lot of external reading and connecting. And, you know, there's someone that I worked with before who says, you know, what do you, as, as important as our jobs are on a week, you know, on a daily basis, the external connection is also extremely important because it gives us, pers you know, perspective and vision and insights into what others are doing in our industry. Um, those challenges are not going to stop. You know, things are, we're, we're expected to do more with less, especially when there's price proing pressures and value generation pressures on either side. And in order to, to be as efficient and as effective as possible, tapping into the communities that are out there and really listening to what others are doing or not doing. I am the first part one to be very candid about what's worked for us and what hasn't. Um, and it's not all, you know, flowers and rainbows and things are great. If you don't talk about the challenges that are you're experiencing in your organization in a very candid way, and you're only saying all the great things you're doing, um, it dissuades people that are coming up in a, in our different levels of their maturity of their, of their organization, right? Of their department. So we have to work together on that. There's such great technology out there that. Although it can do many things, you have to be have a concentrated effort in what you want it to do. So for us, you know, in what we're doing is number one, learning about the technology, really learning about what how we can use it, the best way to use it. Because if you don't establish best practices pretty quick, it's good to be adaptable and flexible, but you still have to guide the people that are going to use it. You can't just throw a whole team of people and say, here, use this new technology. We have to establish some process around it and some guidance around it so that it's really utilized to the best of its abilities and that we can actually maximize on the value that it brings. Um, if we don't do that, the technology can do amazing things, but we're, we're going to you know, not, not really utilize what it, what it can do or not, not take full advantage of what it can do. So right now we're in the learning stage of it, um, but it is a lots of hands on deck, dedicated time. I've actually identified some people on my team to spend dedicated time on a weekly basis, not only getting to know this new technology, but how we can utilize it, what scenarios we can use it for, what is the outcome, and value-wise, what does that mean to our clients? When I go out to the clients and I can say, we have an AI-enhanced practice, um, what does that mean? You know, Because I need to be able to answer those questions for them. What's your take? You know, Given that you've been in-house and you're now in a law firm, what is your honest take on um, this whole discourse around getting rid of the billable hour? Do you think... Um, that it's the right thing to do? Should we be killing it? Should we just maybe be euthanizing it or just, you know, <laughs> keeping it a little bit more quiet? I don't know. What What's your take? And what, what impact do you think that will ultimately have on the law firm client relationship? 
Um, so look, I am all about value-based pricing. You know, what does it mean is, you know, our firms uh, should be pricing, you know, based on outcomes and in delivery. What are, what are they trying to deliver? If I go buy a house, I'm not going to pay on how long it took them to build the house. I'm, I'm paying for the whole house. So the same thing for deals and cases. Value-based price is important. Do I believe the bill of hour will go away? Not necessarily. I think in the legal field, um, you know, for that type of work, it's very difficult to be able to give a full on price for everything. And also clients don't always feel confident that the price that they're being provided is the accurate one. So that that level of, you know, uh, disbelief sometimes or misalign the misalignment uh, affects how an alternative fee arrangement comes to be. The fact that AFAs are called alternative fee arrangements, which means, you know, alternative is not the norm is not the way to go. It has a negative connotation to it. And it really should be, what are we trying to accomplish? What is the success in this in this deal or in this case mean? What are, where, where are we going to end up? And as a firm, tell me how you're going to deliver that and how much it's gonna cost me. When the clients start asking that question, um, I think then you know we can move away from the majority of, of work being done in a billable hour. Tools like Pursuit help in that because then, you know, the client from the client side, you can see that you bid it out and three firms came in very close. So then you feel more confident that the price that you're going to pay is real. It's a reality. It's it's a you had a, a reality check. Right. But when people are working with small teams or the lawyers are negotiating these deals themselves with their firms, you know, or you know, they only work with one firm and they're taking them for their word. It's hard to sell that to your leadership team on the corporate side and saying this is the best deal that we can possibly get. So if those pieces are not set in place to build the confidence around anything beyond the billable hour, um, it's hard to move away from it. And people go with what they know. And we've been talking about getting rid of billable hour for over 20 years. It's not going to go away. I don't believe that. But I do think that there should be more hybrids. And I do think that all work is not created equal, especially legal work uh, with its complexities. It's, uh, you know, sometimes the billable hour is necessary, but we should be a little bit more critical as to why are we pricing things a certain way? Why are we putting these proposals in front of our, our clients? And the client should be confident enough to ask the questions and tell me to tell our, the firms, justify for me why this number makes sense. And then, you know, we can get to a better agreement. But when the conversations are not happening, the bill of hour just sticks. Lots to unpack there and lots to think about. I want to kind of talk about you in as an individual now, Alex, as we round up the, the interview. Your career has always focused on the legal industry. If you hadn't pursued a career in legal ops or even in legal, what do you think you might have been drawn to? What do you think you would have ended up doing? Oh, well, there's a couple of things. Um, I think when I was very young, I wanted to be a, uh, <laughs> there's all the things, you know, when you're, you're a kid, you're like, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor. I want to be this. First, I wanted to be a Laker girl. First of all, I wanted to be like professional dancer out in the field. Like I love to dance, but I really considered doing like major, like I wanted to work for an international business, uh, international hotel chain and do like their giant planning like their party planning like the big weddings that's probably what i would have done on my and so when anytime i throw any kind of event it turns into a huge you know i have a theme and you know all the little the lighting and the music and the food and you know just all, all the things go together 
uh, that's probably either the party planning, you know, for a big international chain, or I would have been a travel blogger, like a travel blogger to get paid to go see a new place and eat good food. <laughs> that would have been ideal. And I know you do a ton of travel, so one I'm going to have to follow you on one of these uh, one of these trips because I imagine traveling with you would be a blast. When I initially started traveling, it was trying to fit in as much as you can on a trip. I quickly learned that not only do you not get the best out of a trip, but you are also get very tired very fast, right? And so anybody that comes to me and says, "What do you? What is one thing you could you would advise me on going on a trip?" I say, identify a few things that you must do, but ultimately just enjoy the place. So now when I go somewhere, I'm like, I'm not trying to fit in 20 things. I'm just trying to enjoy the place and getting lost in a city or, you know, somewhere and just wandering and popping into like a little place that you never expected to, uh, to go into. That is the, you know, that's the best part about traveling. So I'm that kind of traveler now. Before I used to have a very long itinerary. I throw threw that out the window and usually I have like one activity per day, maybe. And then it's really just kind of, I do more of the wanderlust thing now where, you know, I, when I was just in London, I did that and I kind of got lost in the city, walked around for two hours, popped into like some random restaurant that I found walking around. It looked really cool and I had a great time. Definitely just the meandering and the, the taking it all in rather than having lots planned. Alex, final question for you. What advice would you give 25-year-old Alex? And I suspect one of them would be travel, but <laughs> what advice would you give your younger self, Alex? 25-year-old Alex. Number one, I have been my worst critic at all times. I am extremely hard on myself, very competitive with my own self. Sometimes I just don't give myself enough credit. I've learned through having great mentorships that that's me, right? That's that's just who I am as a person. So I would tell my 25-year-old self to give myself a break. You know, it's okay to be, you know, all in and be ambitious and be driven and want to do more. But also, I need to, you know, I have to bask in the accomplishment or in in the positive, in the wins. And sometimes I I would minimize my wins because I was like, well, but if I had done this, it would be something else. And number two, I would have gotten a mentor at a much younger age. Like I worked with mentors in different capacities throughout my whole career, but never a really a formal one. Mentoring someone or being a mentee for someone, um, when you see the fact, when you see other strong individuals and they're in different places in their careers and they're vulnerable and open and transparent with you about that, it does allow you to reflect in a way that uh, it doesn't teach you. You do not learn this on a day-to-day -day job. Like you don't learn this at work. I hope to do that for others. And you know, I'm continuously working. I know time is limited, but I am so grateful for the people that really have taken time to teach me about myself, you know, in, in sharing their stories, their hardships, their challenges in their careers. And I really wish that I had got, I had had an opportunity to have that much early on, earlier on in my career. So I'm hoping that to do that for others, you know, moving forward. And, you know, so those two things are probably it. I have, probably have 20 others because that's what I do. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alex, for spending time with me. It's been great to learn more about you and your role. And we wish you huge success on this new part of the adventure. I'm looking forward to it. I see every challenge as an opportunity. I, you know, when I see, when there's a challenge in front of me, I... 
I just know to push forward. And I really do think this is a, the next phase of my career. It's an exciting time. Where I have come from and everything I've learned, I think of the movie Slumdog Millionaire. In Slumdog Millionaire, he is remembering all these moments in his life that gave him the answers to what he needed to do and what, where, what answer he needed to give. And as I've been here in my new role for seven weeks, this is my seventh week, um, and I feel like a tiny little fish in a big pond again because I've done this again to myself. Having those moments, I'm like, I remember specific moments in my career where I learned something that I'm applying in this role. And it's, it's like these moments of like, wow, and the gratefulness and the feeling of, oh, I'm blessed to have had that experience, even though at that time that experience was not great. Absolutely love that. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been great hanging out with you today. Anytime. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.